Amen. Thank you, praise team. Appreciate you guys. Very thoughtful. You know, this week is going to be a strange week in my family. Uh, we're starting back the weekday preschool. Please pray for Wendy, our longest tenured employee here at Woodmont, is Wendy Robbins. I think she's been here, what, 24 years? Is that right? She started when she was six, so that's, uh, that's amazing. That, uh, no, she's, she's incredible, and, and uh, my wife and Laura, anybody else here teaching in the preschool as we go back? I know several people at home who are watching, but uh, please pray for our, our preschool workers. It's, an, as you know, a strange time to be opening any kind of school, so uh, please pray for Wendy as they follow a whole new regimen of protocols and cleaning and mask and procedures. It's going to be a very interesting uh, situation for our preschool, so please, uh, again, lift them up to the Lord in a word of prayer. You know, what I've noticed about mission trips, if you go in the uh, heritage room here down the hallway, you'll see pictures from many of the trips that Woodmont has been on. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip before? Anybody been on a mission trip? A lot of you. Yeah, many of you have. I found that mission trips are kind of like Lay's potato chips, right? You can't just take one, right? Most people, once they go on a mission trip, they get a taste for what God's doing around the world in missions, and they just can't wait to go back. They just want to go back and encourage those believers that they met. We've had several people here who just have gone on their first mission trips. I think about Katherine uh, Williams and Lynn Weiser. They just, they want to go back to Dominica. They want to go back to Guatemala and see those sweet people that they worked with while they were there. And evidently, Paul felt the same way, because today we're going to see the second missionary journey that Paul takes in the book of Acts. You know, we ended last week with the, the first ever church-wide business meeting of the, the Church Universal, the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Not a very uh, exciting time to be in a business meeting, I'm sure, but it was amazingly providential in how the consequences from that meeting spread out into the rest of the world. They said that any of the Gentile converts didn't have to take on Judaism, but that they entered into the fellowship of believers the same way you and I entered into the fellowship of believers, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, today, when that council was over, we're going to see how Paul was just itching to go back to those churches that he helped plant during his first missionary journey, all he wants to do is go back and encourage those leaders, encourage those uh, believers in those churches that he was in uh, during his first missionary journey. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. I totally get that sentiment I've been to work at a church in Australia uh, four different times, and I've been to work at a church in Spain seven different times, and my heart just is, is longing to go back and be with those believers in those places and to encourage those leaders. I know Rachel, uh, she, talks, she talked about it this morning on the Zoom call, our minister to, to children. She wants to go back to Madagascar so badly. She just doesn't, David, she just aches to go back there and see those uh, people that she worked with for two years as a journeyman uh, missionary through the International Mission Board. So I understand that sentiment. 
But Paul and Barnabas, before they go, they have a disagreement over young John Mark. Barnabas says, let's take him. He's his uncle, by the way. So he's like, let's take John Mark. He's, he's great. And Paul says, no, he's not. He bailed on us as we were going uh, up to Perga. Why would we take uh, someone who's a deserter? I don't want to take him. So they split up. Look at this map here. It'll show you kind of uh, where they went. So Paul decided to take Silas up to Antioch from Jerusalem. Remember, Silas was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And then Barnabas, who's from this island, from Cyprus right here, says, well, I'm taking John Mark and going to Cyprus. Great. God's work is multiplying. Multiple teams are being sent out at the same time. That's a good thing. So Paul and, uh, and Silas go up to Antioch, and then Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. And after they go to Antioch, they go by land over to these cities where they were on their first missionary journey in Derby and Lystra. And you know, Lystra is where Paul meets a young Christian named Timothy, whose mother and grandmother were believers. And he's from a, a mixed marriage. He's got a Greek father and a Jewish mother who's now a Christian convert. And Paul sees that the Lord is doing something in young Timothy. So he takes him along with him as an apprentice on the rest of this second missionary journey. But of course, the trip doesn't go as planned. They get stuck in different places, and Paul wants to go here, and he can't go there for different reasons. And the Holy Spirit is guiding him the whole way. He knows that. But these trips never, never seem to go as planned, do they? Uh, I've, I've lost luggage on trips. I've had a lot of issues on trips. Evan, our, our student minister, told me that there was one of the leaders that he worked with at a, a former church who, uh, her key word on mission trips was Elbig self? Is that how you say it? Elbig self, um, which is, what word is that backwards? Flexible, right? Flexible. She said, we're so flexible that we can do it backwards even. Elbig self. We got to be elbig self on these trips. I thought that was great. I, I wish I had used that when I was leading mission trips. Elbig self. We're going to be so flexible because things won't go the way that we think they're going to go. But Paul believes in God's sovereignty, that he's still on his throne, that he's the one directing his steps. And he realizes that every closed door that he's encountered has been a part of the loving leading of God to get Paul and Silas to where God wants them to be. And this time, God was sending them to a new continent. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about to come to Europe for the very first time. How exciting is that? Paul and his friends were stuck in Troas. Show that map again, Travis. You see that Troas is way on the western tip of Asia Minor, and they're stuck there. They can't get to where they want to go. And Paul has a vision. You may know this as the Macedonian call. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Luke starts using the word we now because Dr. Luke had joined Paul and Silas and Timothy on this uh, voyage. It's always good to have a medical doctor. I talked to uh, one of the references we called for Evan's uh, hiring was a youth pastor that he said, oh, my favorite chaperone on any mission trip is Evan's 
mom, not Evan, but his mom, because she's a medical nurse. And she would always take care of the sick kids, which is good to have. It's good to have a, a, a medical doctor, not a doctor like me who can't really do anything. I start running away when people get sick. <laughs> we sought to go on into Macedonia. That's Europe. That's a, a new endeavor. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We concluded that God had called us to go to a whole new continent. It was probably the furthest west that any of them had ever been in their entire lives. They are truly taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's their, that's their heart. Look at Acts 16, 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. That's a little island in between. And the following day to Neapolis, that's the port city. And then from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Show that map again, Travis. You see that they went from Antioch to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, where they had planted churches. This is Pisidian Antioch, then over to Troas. Then he says we made a direct voyage to Neapolis. That word for direct voyage is a nautical term. It means the wind was at their backs. It only took two days to get to, they spent the night on a little island in the middle called Samothrace, and then they went to Neapolis the next day. Then it was an eight-mile walk west over to Philippi, easy journey. The wind was at their backs. God was directing their journey. Philippi was an ancient city. It was renamed in 356 BC by Philip of Macedon. You know what he was famous for? His son was Alexander the great. The Romans took over the city in 167 BC, and it was really most famous for uh, being the place where Mark Antony and Octavian beat Brutus and Cassius and their armies in the decisive battle of the second civil war in Rome in 42 BC. So after that battle, Philippi became a really important strategic Roman city. They didn't have to pay provincial taxes in Philippi because they were considered part of Rome itself. They, were, they didn't have some provincial governor. They were ruled by the emperor of Rome directly. Philippi was a proud, full-blown Roman city. And Paul and company are about to embark on a seriously cross-cultural, they've never been to Rome. They've never been to a Roman uh, urban area like this. This is a serious cross-cultural missionary experience for them. And the amazing thing to see is how the Lord was working all these things out according to his good purposes. You know, Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world in the 300s BC. Why is that important? Because everyone around this region speaks Koine Greek, meaning that Paul knows this language and can share the gospel with everyone everywhere he goes without a language barrier. And then Rome came and took over, you know, in the last uh, hundred years before this, and they took over, including the, the Roman town of Tarsus. Show that map again, Travis. Tarsus is where Paul was from. It was right about here. The Romans took it over, so Paul was born as a Roman citizen, which means he probably knew some Roman customs and some Latin and now the gospel was invading the most powerful empire that no one could bring down, Rome itself. The great preacher and author G. Campbell Morgan wrote, 
how little the world knows of the divine movements. Rome had small idea that day that the van of the army of its ultimate conqueror had taken possession of one of its frontal defenses. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles to Philippi and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her flag and the change of the world's history. Jesus Christ and the gospel did what no other empire could do. They took down Rome. So when Paul and his friends arrive in Philippi, it's a strange place to them. They've never been anywhere like it. There is no synagogue, but Jewish tradition mandated that there had to be 10 male heads of household present in order to constitute a synagogue meeting. But if that condition couldn't be met, then you could meet by a river or by the sea. So Paul and his friends start walking up and down the river in Philippi looking for maybe some Jewish worshipers. And who do they find? It's a divine appointment. They run into a group of women who were God-fearers. They were gathered to recite the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, right? The Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? That the, the most important commandment we have. And they run into these ladies and look at verse 13, Acts 16, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down, we spoke to the women who'd come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was known for its purple dye and purple cloth. They were very expensive cloth, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, capital G. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You know, one commentary I read said that the Macedonian call was not from a man, it was from a woman. It was from Lydia. This is a game changer for Philippi. Lydia becomes the key figure in the church in Philippi. Luke says in verse 14 that she was a, a Gentile, a worshiper of God, someone who saw something good and true in the Jewish faith and wanted part of it for herself. Odds are that most of the people with her were her family and her lady servants. And God had been preparing her for this moment. So when Paul spoke, the Lord opened her heart. And one of the, the commentaries I read said that this was a huge deal for Paul because his thinking about the role of men and women was about to be turned upside down. He was a good Pharisee trained by Gamaliel to pray things like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. He would pray that on a regular basis. Thank you, God, I'm not a woman. And here he is understanding that Lydia is going to be the leader of the church in Philippi. He's beginning to understand what he would later write, that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, or male or female, but all are one in Jesus Christ. This was the beginning of a movement that would eventually do what no one else could do and take down the Roman Empire. 
And Philippi would become one of Paul's, you know, we don't have favorites, you know, Trey and I talked about youth ministry, you know, we don't have favorite kids, of course, you know, you, teachers, you know what I'm talking about, you don't have favorites, right? <laughs> Paul loved the church in Philippi. It was one of his favorite congregations. When he writes to the church in Philippi, he says things like this. Look at Philippians 1.3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, in, for you all, making my prayer with joy. You know, the word joy appears 16 times in the book of the short four chapters of Philippians. But the pattern we've seen so far in Acts is that when God does something great, when God does something really good in the, the, the book of Acts, we see that Satan comes up against it. The enemy always comes and rises against what God is doing. Look at verses 16 and 17 in Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Interesting story. Was this girl a Christian believer? Was she pointing out the good things that Paul and Silas were doing? No. The, the Greek text makes it clear this is a demonic spirit that has taken over her. And she was owned by some profiteers who made money off of having this girl use this evil power in order to tell her client's future. Satan was infiltrating the gospel movement in order to defile it and derail it. Remember, every time in the Gospels when Jesus is confronted with a demonic possession or demonic person, they say, this is the Son of God. Does Jesus say, yes, I am? No. He rebukes that spirit every time. Why? Because the spirits, the evil spirit's ultimate game is, is only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the fullest. So liberation comes to this girl. It says in verse 18 that the spirit came out of her as soon as Paul pronounced the name of Jesus over her. Liberation had come to her. She was restored to her right mind. She was freed from the demon who had taken over her life. This is a great thing. Well, society doesn't usually see the work of God as a great thing. You know, look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. <laughs> and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's a false accusation, that's not true. You know, God's liberating work often has an economic impact. That's when people really get upset, right? When you touch their pocketbook. People who had made money from evil things will now find themselves cut off from that source of income. 
when the Salvation Army began preaching against the evils of, of drunkenness in East London in the 1800s, the liquor dealers stirred up crowds to go and hurl bricks through the windows of the meetings of the Salvation Army. Over 600 members of the Salvation Army were assaulted on the streets of East London. Many of them were seriously injured and even killed because they were messing with the economy of London at that time. Liberation has serious consequences for those who profit off of evil things. So the girl's owners bring up these false charges and they make racist attacks, don't they? These men are Jews, they say. It's a racist attack. They're coming into our Roman city and doing crazy, illegal things. And young Timothy and, and Dr. Luke apparently get off the hook because they're not Jews. They're Greek Gentiles. And notice how the enemy changes tactics here. With the demon-possessed girl, he tried to infiltrate the gospel movement from the inside and derail it. Now, he just brings blatant, violent opposition against them. But here's the thing. The pattern we see in Acts, persecution only serves to what? To further the kingdom of God. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's going to prove true time and time again, not only in the book of Acts, but in our world today. Look at verse 23. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and then fastened their feet in the stocks. Is that necessary? No. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Singing hymns. Wow. We're going to see that they're put into stocks after receiving many blows. You know, the Roman officials that, that beat them and flogged them are called lictors in Latin. That's where we get our phrase like taking your licks or getting your licks in. The officials who, who beat them, their, their backs were shredded by the flogging. And then the cruel jailer, just to add insult to injury, puts their feet in stocks where they can't move. Again, if I'm beaten and if I'm jailed on a mission trip, I'm, I'm done, okay? I'm calling everyone I can to try to get me home and I don't ever want to go back. But Paul and Silas are so filled with the victorious spirit of the gospel power that they're singing hymns. Look what verse 25 says. The prisoners were listening to them. What a powerful witness. Out of the bowels of this stinking, miserable pit of despair, they're singing hymns of praise to God. And everyone's hearing it. They had no reason to expect a miracle either. Yes, Peter got delivered. Remember when Peter was arrested and put in the fortress uh, Antonia in Jerusalem? He was going to be killed, but God delivered him. But he didn't deliver Stephen. He was martyred. He didn't deliver James. He was killed for the faith, executed for being a Christian leader. They knew that that might be their fate, but they know that whatever happens, God is in charge. And whatever happens will be for their good somehow and for God's glory. I can imagine Paul talking to Silas. Silas, we're here in this prison. We've got a captive audience. This is great. We can share the gospel with all these people and they have nowhere to go. They can't hurt us. We're already here in prison. 
You know, every time Paul wrote about his imprisonments, what did he say? My chains have served to advance the gospel. He always sees his imprisonments as a good thing because God is directing his steps. So Paul and Silas had this endless reserve of inner power through the Holy Spirit in them, but now God's going to show up with outer power. As my friends say, he's going to show up and show out. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. It's the word seismos in Greek, a seismic activity so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Think about this, the first time God's praises are sung on the European continent, the earth shakes. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you feel the oceans roar when all the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord? It's an amazing thing. Immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. But Paul, oh, oh, sorry, we're not there yet. <laughs> this is an incredible thing to see when the, the jailer awakes and the prison doors open. Look at verse uh, 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Again, if I'm Paul and I've been beaten and, and chained and, and put in stocks and God graciously opens the doors, <laughs> and my chains fall off, I'm gone, right? I'm out of there as fast as I can be. But Paul says, guys, 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 just chill. Just stay. And they do. Can you imagine? I would have been like, no way, I'm out of here. But they, they just stay put. And they're just looking at the open doors. Maybe Paul knew that God had a greater plan than mere escape. Paul sacrificed his own earthly liberation because he knew that an even greater liberation was about to come to the jailer and his family. Roman law said that if prisoners escaped, those who were in charge at the time had to be executed. <clears throat> but before the jailer can kill himself, Paul says, look, we're all here. You got everybody here still, don't worry about it. The jailer maybe had heard about the demon-possessed girl. Maybe he had heard the songs wafting up from the prison floor and now he's ready to seek the truth. What must I do to be saved? Paul's answer was short and sweet. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He doesn't draw the bridge diagram. He doesn't use the three circles illustration to evangelize. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There's no pamphlets involved. There's no invitation or music. He just told the jailer where to put his trust. And the jailer and his family become baptized into the Philippian church. Look at verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. The jailer takes Paul and Silas and washes their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his families. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed 
in God. I wonder if after the jailer washes Paul and Silas's wounds in the well there, if Paul and Silas say, now let us wash you. And they baptize them in that same water where they had just been cleansed. It's a powerful thing to see life change. He brings them to his house in the prison complex and they all sit down to breakfast together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then God provides a second opportunity for Paul to walk out of the prison and he still doesn't go. Look at verse 35, I love this. When it was day, the magistrates, the judges, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, hey, you're free, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, some people might call Paul stubborn. I, I love this. <laughs> They've beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. <laughs> I love that. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to please leave the city. I get that. You know, why did Paul uh, want people to come and escort him out and apologize? He, he wanted everyone to know that he and Silas were innocent, not in an effort to protect his own reputation, but to protect Christ's reputation. A public escort by the magistrates would establish their innocence to the people of Philippi. The New Testament tells us over and over again to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father. Christians should make a positive impact on the world, so, not so that people will love us, but so they'll love our Savior. We are to be winsome with the fragrance and the aroma of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Paul and Silas get a nice apology from the magistrates. How awkward is that? Mr. Paul, sir, Mr. Silas, sir, we've made a very grave error. Uh, and they finally walk out of the prison. I bet they took the jailer with them to go meet Lydia and the other believers. Let's close with verse 40. They went out of the prison, they visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and departed. I want us to see just four amazing takeaways from this passage today that should just blow our minds. First off, what a meeting that must have been at Lydia's house. <laughs> Lydia's house became a combination party and worship venue. I'm sure they cried and laughed and sang as Paul and Silas told them how God had given them three chances to walk out of the prison. And more importantly, how he liberated the souls of the jailer and his family. And then they had to leave town. But before they leave, they have this powerful time of celebration and worship with what would soon become one of Paul's absolute favorite churches. Which is the next point. Number two, what a church. First Baptist Church of Europe. <laughs> the First Baptist Church Philippi. This is an incredible congregation made up of all kinds of people. You got a really weird mix of people, a formerly demon-possessed girl, a Roman jailer, and his family, probably some ex-inmates, some ex-cons who were in prison and heard the gospel and witnessed the earthquake, and they're all gathered in the house of this rich lady, Lydia, who's a, a merchant in Philippi. 
rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, all united in Christ. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, they didn't have all the baggage and issues that the Corinthian church had, for example. They were a healthy, thriving church doing great things to advance God's kingdom on the European continent. Which leads to the third point, what a life. What a life that Paul and Silas were living. They were blown with the wind of the Spirit at their backs across the Aegean Sea and onto the shores of Europe. Through thick and thin, despite the whirlwinds of Satan's attacks, they were living their lives to the fullest for God's glory. I love that quote from C.T. Studd. He was a cricket player who left playing cricket to go to the mission field. He said, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Life is short. The things that we do for Christ are the things that will have billion-year investments. The rest of it will all fade away. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you wasting your life binge-watching Netflix or complaining about the news? Let's get in the game like Paul and Silas. Finally, number four, most importantly, what a gospel. The good news of God's saving love had taken hold in Paul and Silas's hearts. Many years later, Paul would write to the church in Rome, in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us good news. We hear so much bad news, but the gospel that you have freed us from sin, from shame, from evil, even from death, God, is such good news that we just wanna praise you. We thank you for how you've made a way for us to be right with you now and forever through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray now that as we come into communion with you, that you would enter into our hearts and touch those places where we need to be encouraged and moved by you and your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You see the elements here at the table before you. Jesus has given us this institution of the Lord's Supper as a, a special ordinance for his people to follow, as a means of communing with him in spirit and in word and in truth. This morning, we're going to take these elements together. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves before we take them. So we're going to have a time of reflection as Lauren and Nate play, Be Thou My Vision. I encourage you just to pray. Maybe you haven't stopped to just spend a minute with the Lord. Today, examine your heart. What's going on inside of you? Maybe you need to close your eyes. Whatever it is you need to do during this time before we take the elements, will you examine your hearts now before the Lord?